Good morning. Uh, this, this morning's sermon comes from Acts chapter 6, verses, verses 8 through chapter 7, verse 1, and verses 51 through 60. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Some of the most influential secular writers of our day have noted that a lot of our drive in life and a lot of our angst and a lot of our dysfunction comes from the fear of not being accepted. Famous playwright Arthur Miller stopped believing in God as a teenager and then several decades later wrote this. I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. I could not escape it. I still felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have somebody tell me that I was okay, that I was acceptable, that I was approved of. This is a man who was a famous playwright who had received all kinds of accolades, and he still had this deep gnawing sense of needing to be accepted, and he never quite found it. Famous singer and songwriter Madonna said this in an interview in Vanity Fair magazine. All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. 
My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. You can spend your entire life searching for validation, searching for acceptance, whether that's from a parent or a child or a friend or a spouse or a colleague. And either you never get it and live a life that's full of anger and full of angst, full of relational tension, full of an insatiable drive. Or you have that moment where you get it and you realize that it didn't bring the satisfaction you thought it would. That's because there's only one embrace, one acceptance that satisfies the deepest longing of the soul, and that's the embrace of Jesus Christ. The question is, how do you receive the embrace of Jesus Christ? If that is the embrace that you need, how do you receive it? First, you receive it by embracing your indictment. Now, what is an indictment? An indictment is a formal charge of a serious crime. What we see in this passage is that Stephen lays a formal indictment, a serious charge against the people that are gathered. In verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. That's a heavy charge. Stiff-necked simply means Stubborn and unwilling to bend or rethink things. Uncircumcised. That means spiritually dead and unwilling to listen to the truth. Stephen goes on to say, this is nothing new. This has been happening in your family tree. He said, your fathers persecuted and killed the prophets in the past. In fact, he, he goes to verse 52, the prophets who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. In his sermon, Stephen actually highlights one of those prophets that was, that was persecuted, rejected by the people, and that was Moses. He says this about Moses in verse 37 of his sermon. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In other words, Moses announced to the people that God was going to send another prophet, the prophet, the righteous one. Moses was pointing to Jesus Christ. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They rejected Moses. They rejected God's leadership and God's voice through Moses. 
And here's the irony of the whole situation. Prior to Stephen's sermon, which begins at the beginning of chapter 7, this is what happens at the end of of chapter 6. They accuse Stephen in verse 11. Prior to him giving this sermon, they say, we've heard him, Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen was simply pointing to the same Jesus that Moses had been pointing to. And then here's the the deeper irony of it all. In verse 15, and gazing at him, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, his face was shining. Just as God had spoken to his people through Moses, God was now speaking to his people through Stephen. Just as the people had rejected Moses, now the people are rejecting Stephen. They rejected Moses because the invisible presence of God wasn't enough for them. They craved a form of the deity or the form of God that they could see. And that explains why in Moses' absence when he was up on Mount Sinai, they told Aaron, manufacture a God for us, make us a God. And that was what became the golden calf. In Stephen's day, God had delivered a form of himself that they could see. He had put on flesh in Jesus. And they still rejected him. They got what they asked for. A God they could see, they could touch. And they still rejected him. What do we learn from this? There is a deep-seated rebellion in the human heart against God. It's not a rebellion that's based on circumstances. It's not a rebellion that's based on a a, a poor situation. It's a rebellion that is a deep, willful rebellion against God. And it's also not something that we learn over time. We come out of the womb, rejecting God, our hearts set against him and against what he would have for us. It's a deep-seated rejection. The prophet Jeremiah describes the human heart this way in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I was leading an investigative Bible study years ago. I read this verse, and before I could even get to the end of the verse, someone in a raised voice said, no, no. That's not true. How do you respond to the indictment that your heart is sick and that your heart is in rebellion against God? You and I respond the same way the people responded to Stephen. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. 
Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Rage, anger, murder. How do you respond when someone calls you out for something? Thank you very much. I appreciate your accurate diagnosis of what I have done wrong, and I'm so glad that you told me so that I can change. No. The immediate impulse that comes out of you when someone calls you out for wrongdoing is to reject it, to not embrace it. And that's exactly what we do with God's indictment. His charge against our rebellion, we reject it. The question is why? Why is the, 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 the native impulse of the heart, or why do we say no? to the indictment that our heart is sick in an absolute rebellion against God. And there's two reasons. I think there's two common reasons why we reject the indictment. The first one is this. I'm not that bad. I mean, sure, there's probably moments here and there that I get defensive. We all do somewhat, but I'm not that bad. Rage, anger, stoning someone, no way. I'm not that bad. In 2012, following the murder of 16 Afghanistan civilians by an American soldier, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, wrote that terrible crimes such as this should not surprise us. He said, even people who contain reservoirs of compassion and neighborliness also possess a latent potential to commit murder. He went on to reference David Buss from the University of Texas, who asked his students if they had ever seriously thought about killing someone. And if so, to write out their homicidal fantasies. He was astonished that 91% of the men and 84% of the women had seriously thought about killing someone and had detailed, vivid, homicidal fantasies. Now you hear that and you say, well, and I'm part of the 9% and the 16%. I've never thought about that. Have you ever in a moment of rage and anger thought about hurting someone? And if your answer to that is no, then I would say by God's grace, you haven't been put in a situation that has drawn that out of your heart but it's in there. It's in there. Second reason why we reject and fail to embrace God's indictment is this. If on the one end it's, it's I'm not that bad, 
not perfect, but I'm not that bad. The other reason is, no, no, I'm actually a good person. I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I live the, the right life. Question is, is that true? Imagine a woman who is a poor widow who has an only son. And she teaches her son how to live as he grows up. And she teaches her son to, to be honest all the time and to work really hard and to give to the poor, to give to those who have need. She doesn't make much money, makes very little money, but somehow she pulls together enough savings to send her only son off to college and to put him through college. Imagine when the son graduates college that he never calls his mother after graduation, never calls her, maybe sends a Christmas card here and there, doesn't respond to her calls, never visits her, but he's honest and he works hard, and he gives to the poor. Imagine if someone came up to that son and said, how dare you? You're not a good person. You're wicked. You've rejected your mom. And if he says, what are you talking about? Of course I haven't. I'm doing everything she taught me to do. Would you say that's a good person? You see, we can rebel against God. We can reject God by keeping all the rules. That's the story of the older brother and the prodigal son. Scott Peck, he's a psychiatrist who converted to Christianity at the end of his career or towards the end of his career. He writes about this encounter he had 20 years before his conversion to Christ. He describes meeting with a depressed 15-year-old boy. Tragic story, whose 16-year-old brother had just committed suicide. And he learned as he talked to this boy that the brother had done this with this 15-year-old boy's gun that had been gifted to him at Christmas by his parents. Scott Peck goes on to say he, when he finally met with the parents, he said what was most striking was their deliberate refusal to acknowledge any wrongdoing on their part. They would not tolerate any concern for their son or any attempt to look at moral reality. And two, dec two decades later, after his conversion to Christianity, this is what he wrote about that encounter. One thing has changed in 20 years. I now know Bobby's parents were evil. I did not know it then. I felt their evil, but had no vocabulary for it. My supervisors were not able to help me name what I was facing. The name did not exist in our professional vocabulary. As scientists, rather than priests, we were not supposed to think in such terms. 
And then he made this profound statement about evil. He said, the central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. You cannot receive the embrace of Christ until you acknowledge and embrace God's indictment, which is that you have a dark, sinful heart that rejects God and that is in rebellion against God. We have a serious problem in our culture and a serious problem in the church. And I would say a serious problem in families. And that is that we are blame shifters. Meaning that we don't own our sin, but we are quick and we would rather blame it on someone else. We inherited this blame shifting from our first parents. You and I come out of the womb as blame shifters because we inherited it from our first parents. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and God came to Adam in the garden and said, what happened? What did Adam do? She did it. It's her fault. I didn't do it. Now, if we're in a culture and we live in for centuries, it's nothing brand new in this culture, but it certainly is, I think, spiking. If we're a culture of blame shifters, how does that change? Well, it changes by teaching the next generation. Parents, I've said it before, but there are a few important things that you must teach your children. Number one, I've said it before, is repentance, teaching your children how to repent. But number two, and this is closely related, is teaching your children how to own their sin and not blame others for it. And I'll just say with young children, it's teaching your children not to blame their sin on brother or sister but to own it. And I'll tell you that this can't just be taught. It has to be modeled. Kids learn from the model of their parents. Parents, are you repenting before your kids? Parents, are you owning your sin before your kids and showing them what it means not to shift blame? Say, why is this so important? Because you can't receive the embrace of Christ until you own your sin, until you embrace God's indictment. So how do you receive the embrace of Christ? Embrace the indictment. Second, embrace your acquittal. Now, what's an acquittal? An acquittal is a judgment that a person is not guilty of the crime with which they've been charged. You say, well, where do we find the acquittal in this passage? Note how Stephen responds to the rage and to the anger of the people. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's a striking detail in these verses. It's emphasized twice. And that that is that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And you say, why is this significant? Well, Hebrews 10 emphasizes the contrast between Jesus, who has sat down at the right hand of God after offering for all time one sacrifice, and the temple priests, who were constantly standing because their work was never finished. The book of Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus has sat down because his work's done. So why was he standing here? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Stephen was being condemned and accused by a human court unjustly. Just so you don't lose it here, you may, you may be thinking, wow, a lot of examples of killing, of murder. Of... You realize what happened here. There was no formal charge against Stephen. This was a lynching. This was a murder by the religious leaders of the day. So Stephen has been condemned, accused by a human court unjustly. And as he's being condemned, he gets a glimpse into the heavenly courtroom. He gets a glimpse into the heavenly divine trial that's going on. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing to plead his cause. He sees Jesus standing as the defender, as the witness before God the Father. pronouncing him not guilty, acquitted. Say, but how? How can you be pronounced not guilty when you and I are well aware of our daily sin? Well, there's a very close parallel to this stoning of Stephen in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 22 Zechariah the priest has called God's people out for their sin. And what do they do? They stone him. They stone Zechariah. What's notable is what Zechariah says as he's being stoned. Verse 22, and when Zechariah was dying from the stoning, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. Zechariah is being stoned and he calls down vengeance. He calls down the judgment of God on these people who are stoning him. Almost identical situation with Stephen, except big difference. Stephen responds very differently. Stephen doesn't call down vengeance. He says in verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen had learned a lesson from watching Jesus die on the cross because as Christ was hanging on the cross in Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgiveness, not judgment, 
flowed from Jesus' lips. If you're trusting Christ, Jesus stands to defend you, to plead your cause, to pronounce your acquittal that you're not guilty. Some of you, maybe all of you to a certain degree, are facing condemnation and accusation from a human court right now. Something or someone is accusing you and condemning you. And condemnation generally comes from three sources. It either comes from the world, comes from the flesh, means you, or from the devil. Maybe the world or the culture is accusing you of doing something you didn't do. Or maybe the world and the culture, which gets really highlighted on social media, is accusing you of being a horrible parent. Horrible mom, ruining your kids. Or maybe the world, the culture, is accusing you of being an absolute, utter failure in your workplace and in your career. Or maybe your flesh is holding up this self-imposed standard of beauty or competence or success that you can never reach. Or maybe the devil is holding before you your repeated sin and accusing you of being unworthy of God's forgiveness or unworthy of God's favor. There's only one trial and one verdict that counts. If you're facing accusation and condemnation from some earthly court of some sort, you need a glimpse into the heavenly courtroom where you see Jesus standing pleading your cause, defending you, and pronouncing your acquittal that you're not guilty because he absorbed your judgment. He absorbed your sin on the cross. How do you respond to your acquittal? This actually begs a deeper question. How do you relate to Jesus Christ? How do you relate to Jesus Christ? Do you draw near to Christ through your success or through your failure? Let me flip the question. Do you believe that Jesus draws near to you through your success or through your failure? Years ago, I had a conversation with a friend who was sharing his story of growing up. He played college football. His dad was proud of him as a son. His dad would call him every day after practice and say, son, so proud of you. How was practice today? And then my friend tells the story that he got injured and it became a career-ending injury. He couldn't play football anymore. 
and his dad stopped calling him every day. That's a picture how relationships work in our world. We relate through success. We relate through production. And then we come to Christ and we bring that, exa- we bring that into our relationship with Christ. And somehow we, we believe that, that we draw near to Christ through our success and through producing. And we believe that Christ draws near, near, draws near to us through our success and our producing. And it couldn't be any further from the truth. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan pastor in the 1600s, said this, Christ's own joy Comfort, happiness, and glory are increased by showing grace and mercy, in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Dane Ortland, who wrote a great book called Gentle and Lowly, gives this illustration commenting on Goodwin's quote here. He says, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care for a primitive tribe that's been afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, those who are afflicted refuse the care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few young, brave men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. Nothing but joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. Portland goes on to say this, so with us and so with Christ, he does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. And that's why he came. You receive the embrace of Christ by embracing the indictment, by embracing the acquittal, and by coming to Jesus with your repeated failure and your repeated weakness. 
and your repeated brokenness, and Jesus meets you with tremendous joy to bring renewed and refreshed forgiveness and healing. Let's pray. Father, we confess our angst, we confess our anger, we confess our insatiable drive to perform and to succeed, we confess our ongoing relational tension, and we confess that much of it is due to searching for validation, searching for acceptance outside of what you have provided and who you have provided in Jesus. Oh, Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you draw us regularly and repeatedly to your Son, Jesus? that for those of us who are being condemned and accused by the world, by our flesh, by the devil, some of us who are being accused by a human, an earthly court, that you would give us a glimpse of the heavenly courtroom, that we would see Jesus with great joy on his face, standing to defend and plead our cause. Father, would you help us to find our validation, to find our acceptance in your son Jesus and in him alone. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.